The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Robot Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Okay, buddy, I got to ask you a question. Um, and I, 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 will, I will hasten to preface uh, and forward this question by saying that this deserves to be a whole poll. But I yeah. need your advice right now this week. What is your favorite keep cool strategy on hot, humid rides? I'm going back to Memphis again later this week. And um, it is now mid-July. And I <laughs> would like right. to avoid that whole earthworm on a hot sidewalk routine. Yeah. Um, I, I have two. I have three. Not very um, great secrets. Okay. The the first one is, um, you know, electrolytes. The first, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is electrolytes. Uh, early, hard, and often. Because what I find is I'm a sweater and I drop all of my moisture right away and all the salt goes away and then i have trouble actually with my heart rate i have trouble you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. modulating my heart but if i uh, electrolyte hard early in the ride that tends to work okay having said that the the, the second two tips um are less practical but more effective for me <laughs> and the first one is simple acceptance <laughs> just in advance assume yeah that's it's going to be hot that's correct and you're doing this anyway yes you are just that's just what it is okay yeah because if my head starts in the wrong place then it you know it ends there too uh-huh yeah, I follow you. I, I do. Um, mm, yeah. And the third tip is actually something I got from my brother who lived as an adult in Jacksonville, Florida. Oh. And, and owned a car that did not have air conditioning. Okay. So he would commute. There's a big, big sort of bridge uh, thing into town in Jacksonville. And he would find himself on it with the temperature at the angry end of the uh, spectrum mm -hmm. and, you know, all of the humidity. And he would be dressed for work, right? So he's got to work like a button collar shirt. Oh. And he's sitting in his car and he said, you know, John, in moments like that, you just have to be reptilian. And that means, you know... Doing, you know, none of us is this clever, but he would just, he said, just slow your heart. Just breathe through your nose if you can. This is more challenging on a bike, but it is possible and I've done it. Breathe through your nose. Just have every, expend no unnecessary energy. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So those are my three, three tips. Yeah, I I was hoping for something that would like change my general sense, my experience of the hot and the humid. And uh, what you've reminded me is that this uh, this desire of mine is a little bit like wanting um, a time machine. Not going to happen. That's it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe if you just accept that there's evil inside of you and it has to come out. Well, and that sweat is the only way for that to happen. It can ha it can take on that sort of cathartic uh, vibe. 
See, I am a man who's so wired to see all of the possibilities that I recognize that there's a fair chance that what comes out of me will not be the evil, but all the good stuff. <laughs> That's right. You all know? my best ideas ran down my face. Yes. <laughs> Soaked yes. into my jersey. Oh, okay, well, I better get ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gird your loins. I don't even know what that expression properly means, but do it. I, 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 I try to keep my loins to myself, um, uh, unless otherwise I you were requested. Say, I thought you were going to say they were constantly girded. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think so. Um, yeah. and no, I, not I feel a little bit like a six year old in that. I don't really know what girding is and maybe I want to, and maybe I'm not ready yet. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably just let it go as a linguistic, uh, foible of the language. Yeah. It'll, it's something that'll end up in a post, you know, 40 years hence on Facebook of remember when we used to say gird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know how I am. I get things stuck in my head. So the next TCI Friday or useless review will certainly in, include girding one's loins. I'll, I, I'll I look forward some to that. Etymological research uh, in the meantime. Yes. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I, I, uh, I'm in a, a funny headspace this week. Yeah. Um, I'm dealing with a person who is to some extent dependent on me. Um, this person is not a relative and I don't want to dive into the details because this, uh, you know, this person has a private life and they want to keep it private, but, um, they find themselves in a very difficult situation health wise, um, uh, which cascades into financial matters, um, uh, main and it's, you know, it's mainly due, due to poor luck. It's not a case of poor decision making. It's just bad a bad deal mm -hmm. uh, i have no real obligation to help uh but i have the ability to so that's what needs to happen mm -hmm. and that's and that's fine right um you know what i'm thinking about a lot is my good fortune you know, if you if you walked into my basement, you'd see a rack full of custom handmade bikes. You'd see uh, a bunch of skis. You'd think this is a person with money and leisure time. And uh -huh. you'd be right. You'd be right. Those things are true. And I'm keenly aware that a lot of that is down to luck, too. I've I've worked hard uh, in my life. Uh, my wife has worked hard, too. But I'm not I'm not um, deluded to think that other people also haven't worked hard. Right. Lots of people work hard. Mm -hmm. Most most people work hard. Probably most people work pretty hard. Um, but not everybody. A lot of people get little, if any, reward for that. They just get more hard work. Yeah, um, I'm in touch with that part. Yeah. So I'm just think trying to think about the appropriate attitude and actions that should come from my good luck. Hmm. You know, like gratitude at a minimum, right? Yeah, that is, that should always be our base condition, right? I think so. Uh, if not, I mean, what are we? I don't, this is this is the thing. But I mean, I think gratitude is nice. But then there's action, which to me looks like generosity. Mm -hmm. And generosity is is maybe too kind a word for it. Uh, you know, like what I've got is mine, but I can share it. Just like I would share my passion for cycling with my friends and loved ones and, and with our audience. Mm -hmm. um, I have a thing I can contribute. And not only should I share it, but I should be grateful that I can share it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of the same thing to me with help and money. Um, you know, if you have it and you were fortunate to get it then you should share it. I, I mean, that's how I feel for myself. Mm -hmm. a, a buddy of mine uh, texted me about last week's episode of the show. He said, you and Patrick are dabbling with socialism over there. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, let's just be honest and say that a group ride is, uh, you know, a, a, 
a socialist endeavor with capitalistic uh, outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't actually believe in in pure socialism or pure capitalism, right? It's all of an arrangement. Those are just deck chairs that get rearranged to suit the, the needs of the moment, right? Yeah. Well, like, there we are... have public education. That's socialism. Yeah. Yeah. Roads. Right. Roads. Roads. Yeah. And, that's and, socialism. And on the subject of pure, there are two pure things in my life. My love for each of my sons. Yeah. That I, I, you know, nothing else I can characterize. Well, maybe my, you know, the love of my parents for me. There aren't that many things that I am willing to call pure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all a hodgepodge. Capitalism, good. Socialism, good. Which tool is correct for the job? In this particular case where this person needs help, a little socialism uh, could go a long way. But but whatever. Those are just, you know, I. I I just think if I if I take for granted, for example, just to keep it in the cycling realm, that I have all these great bikes and that I have time to ride them and even that I can work on a project like TCI Mm -hmm. that is a labor of love much more than money. (laughs) um, (laughs) Click subscribe, folks. Um, If I don't honor that with gratitude, what what is it even worth? And if I don't take the gifts I've received and share them with other people, I don't know. Just seems greedy to me. Yeah. Uh, You know, you you touch on something really interesting here. I'm reminded of the interview that I did with former Memphis mayor A.C. Horton a couple of years ago. Um, I did a feature for Bicycling Magazine about how. Memphis was in all likelihood no longer the worst city in the nation for cycling. Uh, Whereas like they had won that, you know, like Eddie Merckx rolling away from the field, eight minutes up the road. They had taken that distinction uh, and, you know, designed a flag around it practically. So I was in his office in downtown Memphis with him and I put the question to him. There's this, uh, old railway bed that turned in that was turned into a bike path that they call the green line. And I, I, I put the question to him, you know, how'd you do it? How'd you sell this thing? And, um, uh, for those who aren't familiar with this, uh, particularly gifted politician, AC Wharton is African-American and he knew that the trick was to sell his people on it. He said, you know, white folks, uh, you know, they're out on their bicycles, they're using it. And he said, but, uh, black folks, uh, you know, they're working two jobs. They're not thinking about buying a bike and riding this thing. And he said, so I knew that most people were going to see this as just something for white people. And my way of selling this to them was by appealing to something for their kids. Uh, my whole point in bringing this up is that, yeah, you and I are um, a class of people with with leisure time, leisure energy, leisure endeavors. Uh, right. And that is something that is perhaps easy for us to overlook. Even beyond yeah. having a nice bike, just the fact that we have time to ride a bike. It's like, mm. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I was I was born into a certain level of leisure. Yeah. Right. I've had pastimes and hobbies. Right. And not everyone gets to have those. Some people are born without the ability to have them. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, I mean, the other thing I want to get out is that this is not me telling other people what to do with their own good fortune. This is just me saying that these are the only ways I know to square how I live with what I believe. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways that people get there for themselves on the face of it it seems like sort of touchy feely altruistic bullshit pardon uh the we'll just mark it explicit (laughs) right and it pains me to be talking about this like it's some sort of virtuous path because actually i think it's about my quality of life how i feel about myself and in that sense you know it's as self-interested as any way to go about living, right? I'm I'm making the decisions that I think are best for me. If they help her, that's great. 
And I just hope the outcomes are good. You know, when you try to help another person, I think you have to be very careful not to let your ego overwhelm their sense of themselves, right? Mm. My ego is as unwieldy as anyone else's. Um, but this is, this is, you know, again, to bring it back, I think this is all in keeping with the TCI mission to keep what's good about cycling for ourselves. We have to give it away to other people. Amen. Yeah. Because otherwise I feel like I'm just hoarding a thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the reasons that I've found writing about cycling and now, you know, talking about cycling so compelling for so many years is that there is nothing else in my life that has illustrated the value of the social contract as as explicitly and as sure. easily as cycling has. You know, somebody gets tired. Go to the front, you know, let them get on your wheel, uh, give them a pull. Somebody's hungry, share some of your food. Uh, somebody's thirsty, share some of your water. Uh, pull over if somebody's really wrung out and needs a chance to catch their breath. All these little things that about how we relate to other people uh, in a way that shows you how it supports your community I, I mean, I was a Boy Scout and a lot of the lessons about the social contract that they tried to teach us in Boy Scouts really didn't make sense until I got into cycling. Yeah, that might have been a limitation in my own intelligence uh, or or it could have been ADD or both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sometimes you're just not um, I don't know what point in my life the switch flipped from selfish to well, let's be honest, less selfish. <laughs> oh, I'm on a dimmer. Yeah. I started dim. I got a little brighter. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where I am, too. And and so, you know, I'm a little messed up about this situation because, you know, my ego says there's a way to rush in and fix everyone's problems all the time. But actually, if I just do the part that's in front of me to do that, that or the part that wants someone asks me to do Mm -hmm. that could be that could be enough right i don't think uh i'm not here to save the world i'm just help here to help the people who are around me that need that help yeah yeah my my (laughs) wife and i have this um sort of inside marital joke it's it's my joke really and she just plays along with it (laughs) you know if i'm cooking dinner she'll say do you do you need anything? Is there anything I can do for you? And I say to her, all I need is a little love and a little encouragement. It's all I ever need. <laughs> and, you know, that I'm 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 messing around, but that's also um, largely true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the occasions when it's not true, they kind of tend to show themselves. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I think everyone just needs a little love and a little encouragement and occasionally alone. Or, you know, some some shared expertise or whatever. But other than that, love and encouragement will do the trick. They can they really can accomplish an awful lot. And they and they want to. Like people don't generally want to be taken care of. They want to take care of themselves. Yes. Yes, that is absolutely another fundamental truth. Yeah. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to be the weak one on the group ride that's, that sucks wheel and, and, you know, gets carried home. Nobody wants that. They accept it when they absolutely need it. Yeah. Uh, having been that guy on maybe a lot of occasions, (laughs) (laughs) I, I have, um, uh, we'll call that one of my core competencies. (laughs) accepting that help yes yes uh and and um actually you know developing the uh requisite humility to admit uh that no you've got me against the ropes can you can you just help me get home now right yeah 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 so if you start from the assumption that people don't really they don't actually want handouts and help but sometimes they need them. Yeah. And, you know, the way you go about offering help uh, is 
pretty interesting, people's ability to accept it. I There was a post in the Enter the Deuce series back in 2013 when my son Matthew was born, and people were asking me, hey, what do you need? What can I do for you? Because we were spending crazy amounts of time at the hospital hoping that our kid didn't die. And, uh, it was, you know, somebody would, would make the offer. What do you need? And I was so overwhelmed, you know, a, I didn't know how to say, uh, well, I need X, um, saying X felt like X more than I deserved. That was hard. Um, Hmm. and then there was just the, you know, how, how do I even come up with an answer? Um, so that was a real struggle for me. And one day, uh, a friend and his wife said, it was a Saturday in the, in the morning, they said, we're going to come have lunch with you. What do you want? We're stopping at a sandwich place. And mm. that worked great because they, they were like, what do you want in your sandwich? What kind of chips do you want? What do you want to drink? And all I had to do was answer three questions. I didn't have to imagine anything. And that was the trick. That was the thing that allowed me to accept help from someone else. Uh, The other thing about accepting help is when it's, when it's in a sphere where you're unaccustomed to it, um, it really can be very hard. And it's uh, the, the giver needs to pave that way as much as possible. When I, roles reversed here. Uh, when I got um, our listeners and my readers, our readers, uh, to send clothing after the Tubbs and Nuns fires in 2017, and mm. I started giving out that clothing, the thing that I found out in a hurry, which is to say the first friend who came by, for them to feel like they could accept that help, they needed to tell me the story of running out of their home in flip-flops and taking time to grab the photo albums or looking at the photo albums on the way out going, I hope they're still here. Um, and you know, so it's, uh, part of accepting help I've come to understand is making your, making sure that the person offering the help is clear on just why there is that need and they are willing to accept. And, allowing somebody that that moment um, can be pretty powerful. Yeah, I think that's right for both people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, uh, this would probably be a good time (laughs) now that we're deeply in. We're going to take a little break and we will come back in a minute. Let's get emotionally centered. The Pace Line is brought to you by the Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What have you got for us this week, Patrick? So, two episodes back, you asked, where are all the bikes? And then we proceeded to talk, perhaps not out of our hindquarters, uh, about the... Well, you could say that maybe we were talking about the east side of the barn with only a view of the west side of it. Fair. Yeah. So I got in touch with a friend who is one of the better connected and more knowledgeable people I know in the bike industry. His name's Mark Peterman, and his history... Uh, in cycling is as rich and deep as anyone in the bike world might possibly have. He was an elite level racer in Colorado. Uh, he was a traveling sales rep. 
He was a race promoter, a bike shop manager, and then rose up through the ranks at GT, becoming eventually a high level executive, uh, at one point, even general manager. Um, and then uh, had another executive position with uh, Cycling Sports Group, the parent company for both GT and Cannadale. And these days, uh, he has his own outfit, um, and he's based in Taiwan. And uh, his his new product is based on you know advances in materials technology. So. I got on the Skypes with him to ask him what he knew about why so many bike shops are struggling with inventory. Um, now, before we roll that uh, uh, that interview, I got to say, as it happens, I am patently incapable of conducting a five minute interview to save my life. <laughs> So what we are about to play for you listeners is an excerpt um, that answers uh, these central questions. Um, But the full interview, I think, is pretty fascinating. And so next week we will run an episode of Paceline Tandem with my full interview with Mark Peterman. So that said, here's Mark and what he has to say about our current supply chain issues. You're in Taiwan and you're well connected. And I figured Peterman will know what's going on with the supply chain and, uh, you know, what the problem is. So first, you know, at its most elemental, bikes still aren't flowing. Why? Uh, that's a great question. So I think the main question is that the, the bicycle supply chain is, is never been healthy, never been healthy. Um, there's not a huge number of suppliers for critical components. There's a handful. The major supplier, we'll call them Big Blue, Shimano, um, is a bottleneck. Uh, in, as, we, as we discussed, in February of 2020, most suppliers were canceling orders, canceling orders. They thought the virus was going to shut down uh, the economy. Right. Um, two months later, they were doubling their orders. So they did a, a complete high-speed U-turn. And uh, that kind of disruption and that kind of un- unpredictable event in the supply chain of cycling is, you can't handle it. Shimano, Shimano has a, a long-term plan. They make money. They're profitable. They have X factories. They have X capacity. They, they maybe tweak that by 10%, but they're not building new factories because they, they don't believe in anomalous events. They believe in an organized long-term plan. So that bottleneck... For Shimano alone, bottlenecks everything else. Um, I, everybody, go ahead. Well, I'm curious. Uh, I mean, is there anything that can, you know, is there a lever long enough to move Shimano in one direction or another? Or, or are they essentially um, the pace at which, you know, what they do is the pace at which the bike industry moves? Is that a fair statement? Uh, due, due to their uh, dominance and, and their and their and their uh, you know ubiquitousness across cycling, um, they determine how fast the business moves. Mm. Um, SRAM in the upper end, you know, SRAM in the upper end for road has some has some leverage. SRAM certainly in one buy uh, in upper end MTB has some leverage. But your bread and butter product, you know, your five ninety nine, six ninety nine, seven ninety nine, Alivio rear derailleur, Alivio shifters, uh, you know, an SR crank, or whatever. Um, that's that's Shimano running the show right there, and you know that stuff is um, hugely in demand, and that's that's re- yeah, that's where bike shops make. Yeah, you know, a lot of bike shops sell thousand, two thousand dollar bikes. A lot of them sell a lot of six ninety nine, seven ninety nine bikes, especially in a pandemic where someone comes in and goes, "Hey, I want to buy a bike." You know, mm-hmm. even now, you know, they're not going to shell out two grand on a bike for a pandemic bike, you know. So so uh, it's it's uh, it, and plus the other suppliers like, you know, Tektros, Sun Tours, uh, RockShox, all those other things that are on the bikes, uh, Velo, those kind of saddles, you know, they are they were caught unawares. And even they I mean, the lead time to build a new factory is two years. <laughs> so you can't add infrastructure overnight. You just turn the dial on what you have. Right, right. Um, is it typical for factories in uh, Taichung, uh, you know, at least in the bike industry, to run, you know, what we would think of as three shifts, run 24 hours? 
No, they won't do that here. They'll do it. They might do it. They it, okay. So fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, they they might do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, China, China, they they would definitely do that in China. Um, Vietnam, they cannot do that by law. So it's you know two shifts maximum. You know eight to eight to midnight. Um, but to run for an assembly factory to run that shift, they have to have the stuff. You know, mm-hmm. getting the getting the stuff is the problem. So, you know, someone like Tetro right now, they're quoting two year lead times you know, for breaks. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like people just throw their hands up. You know, people are putting out POs for 2023 right now. We're like what? Because <laughs> they just want to secure it. They just want to get their They want to get a place in line. Yeah. Shimano is, Shimano is what we call FIFO. First in, first out. Uh-huh. You can give them a forecast, uh-huh. but they're actually using that forecast just to see as intelligence, to see what you're using. They're not actually acting on that forecast. They don't act on it. They don't build your stuff based on your forecast. So it's like, what are you, what are you using of our stuff and what are you not using? They're unbelievably, unbelievably good at analysis on, you know, what product managers are going to use and what they're not going to use by asking for that forecast. The forecast is uh, not actionable. You have to put the order in. You got to put the order in. And when they receive the order, then you get in line. So again, that was Mark Peterman of Airfoam. <laughs> now, John, here's the funny thing. Uh, he and I talked, uh, and that was day before yesterday. Um, and I had not even finished editing the interview when Shimano announced a $300 million, that's U.S., investment in factories in Japan and Singapore. Uh, the new factory in Singapore will cost $179 million and it will produce high-end drivetrain components. So you got to figure that's more Dura-Ace, more Ultegra, more 105, more XTR, more XT, um, more Diori. Um, kind of amazing. Um, mm. Now, they will spend $118 million to expand production in factories at uh, Osaka and Yamaguchi. I'm not clear on what's being produced there, um, but it is a safe bet to say that some of the expansion in either Osaka or Yamaguchi will be devoted to e-bike components. Mm. I find this absolutely hilarious. You know, Peterman, the moment he gets finished telling me, no, Shimano's not going to expand production, they go and <laughs> announce they're expanding production. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we discussed in the longer interview was how a piece of the supply chain puzzle is how shipping containers are in short supply. Right. When the pandemic hit and all the cargo ships tied up to docks, containers wound up sitting in parts of the world that didn't produce much. Uh, So now we have factories producing stuff, but enough, not enough shipping containers to move everything. Mm. So, as those containers make their way to those ports, ships are stacking up, waiting for a berth that can load them. You've got just as big a problem on the other end with ships stacked up, waiting to get into Los Angeles, San Pedro, Oakland, and Seattle. And I hear Vancouver as well. Um, I ran across an interesting story about how e-bike brand Radpower decided to use a brake bulk ship, which is to say a smaller ship that will take some irregular loads, like stuff that is on pallets, but not in containers, um, in order to move its containers from Asia to the U.S. So instead of coming into Seattle, they used a brake bulk ship uh, that docks in Everett. Uh, So normal container ship, you know, a thousand feet long or more, gigantic This brake bulk ship they used about 300 feet long, much, much smaller. Compact so, car version of yeah. shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a result, by, by chartering a ship that came into Everett, they shaved 54 days, almost two months off shipping. Hmm. Now, they were lucky because their warehouse is in the Seattle area, so not hard to get the stuff trucked from uh from the dock to the warehouse many bike companies have warehouses in southern california where a solution like this is a mm, let's say a good deal more challenging 
And while the increase in speed for rad power was super notable and really advantageous, uh, the increase in shipping costs was substantial, 35% higher. Oof. Oh, and those shipping containers that are in short supply? <laughs> rad power had to purchase containers outright because they are in such short supply. Mm. Um, but again, short supply, they'll be able to sell them here in the U.S. once they're empty. Mm. Um, yeah, so just crazy situation. Um, it's... It's interesting to see how this is playing out and the things that uh, continue to impact it. Yeah, definitely. I wonder I wonder if uh, Shimano is moving. I mean, you said Singapore and Japan, basically. Yeah. um, Which are two countries with a, a more top down approach to things like pandemic management. And I just wonder <laughs> if they are reducing capacity in countries where they don't control as many variables. I, I'm, I'm only guessing. I know nothing. But I do think one of the things that uh, companies learned during this pandemic was that if they had factories in a place where they had really very inefficient responses to the pandemic, it cost them in a much bigger way. Right. So Mm -hmm. the the money they thought that they saved by being in perhaps a lower labor cost market, um, they then lost because they had to wait longer to bring things back online. I'm again, I'm this is me surmising, but yeah, well, it's it's safe to conclude that during the period of time that Japan was essentially shut down, that Shimano was probably not really producing much of anything. Right. Um, and as, you know, as Mark noted, uh, in our interview, um, Shimano does what they do, does what they do. They have a plan. They stick to the plan. Mm. Um, and so whatever production was lost during that time, they're not adding extra extra shifts to get on back, get on top of that again, um, Mm. is my understanding. Mm. So, yeah. Um, Looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, uh, I uh, I've had a lot of fun listening to it a second and third time as I edit um, to get mm. it cleaned up. So fascinating, dude. Uh, he uh, he did me a, a lovely solid uh, a couple of years ago when I was in Taichung and took out an entire day to uh, just drive me around doing factory visits at Taichung, introducing me to people. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a neat sort of alternate angle education on the bike industry there. Right. Uh, and it helped to illustrate how no matter what someone's making in their factory, in the end, it really still comes down to good relationships and respect and trust. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because I think I think for, you know, for me to an extent, but uh, to a lot of consumers, Asian manufacturing is a black box, right? Mm -hmm. It just looks like some story they tell themselves in their heads. So learning more about that and understanding what it really is and what the what the range of quality and output and all of that stuff is, um, I think is important. Like I used to sell handmade American bikes and people assumed that I was therefore anti-Asian-made stock bikes. And I said to them, that's not the case at all. I mean, those factories are filled with super skilled people. The reason that stuff gets made there is because that's where the expertise is. It's not a case of, you know, one thing good, the other thing bad. It's a case of, you know, like they're just two different things and Mm -hmm. you should understand Mm -hmm. what's good about them. And choose the one that works best for you, but don't turn it into, you know, an us and them scenario because that's it's false. It's just a false narrative, but it's also not helping anyone. Yeah. And that was that was one of the things that, you know, the the whole handmade movement really kind of bugged me. Mm. Um, I mean, I love seven. Uh, I, I love, you know, number 22. Some of the guys that used to be at Serata, uh, you know. Chris Bishop, who made one of my bikes, I, you know, I love all of that stuff, 
but to look at say um you know a specialized tarmac and say that's not handmade Mm. <laughs> wait, wait, what? No, you may not be able to pronounce the names of the people who worked on that bike. And, you know, uh, how many people will work on a given bike that passes through seven? I don't know. Half dozen? Three? Three. Three. Okay. Uh, in some factories, it might only be eight who work on, you know, the entire bike start to finish. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not many more. But it's all hand work. It's not like these are, you know, injection molded toys. Right. They're not auto sanded. You no. know. Right. No. And and having laid up one carbon fiber down tube, uh, top tube in my life, mm. um, the skilled people can do it in about seven minutes. It took me 45 and I wound up with a headache. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult work. It's it's no doubt about it. It's done there because the expertise is there, and that's not a small thing. Yeah, yeah. All righty, let's move on to Paceline Picks. What do you say? Sure. So my pick this week is the humble but beautiful ESI grip. Mm. I, got, I had a pair replaced recently, and while replacing grips is probably the second item on Hell's chore list... <laughs> I mean, how do you, how are you, so a grip has to slip over the handlebar and then never slip again. That's, that's like, um, I don't know what that is. That's a Sisyphean, you know, it's dumb. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a contradictory mission. It's got to it go on, con- but it can't come off. That's right. It's got to go on without injury you know and i have nearly injured myself trying to take off and put on grips because i just don't do it enough to be good at it but but the point is esi grip um it is this very simple thing i really love the simple things that you know disappear after you start using them Mm -hmm. and it's it's i i i was standing in the bike shop last week and they were like handing me grips now i've always used esi grips um but they were handing me all these different grips and they were cool. Um, you know, they all had sort of a different tactile experience and some of them felt really neat as I was standing there in the shop and they were like, you sure you want the ESIs? And I was like, I am because I know that all of these other ones that are so cool to put your hand on right now, as soon as you get them sweaty are going to turn into an unholdable thing for me, for me. <laughs> But the ESI is not. Um, so I'm going to I'm just going to stick with it. Uh, ESI, they're just the plainest, most vanilla solution. I love them. $18 solves the grip problem for me. And they come in all kinds of colors. They come in chunky or extra chunky. So, you know, you can express yourself with your grips if that's a thing you feel that you need to do. Um but I think people know by now that I love the things that just stay out of the way while I'm riding, the things I can forget about. ESI grips are magically forgettable. <laughs> that even sounds like a they, breakfast cereal. Yeah, even if I think they look uh, they look good at the same time. So <laughs> ESI grips. But it, so it's not a lock on grip. There's no you don't insert a three millimeter Allen and tighten nope. it down. Nope. Hmm. Mm. I know what you're thinking. Mm hmm. Yeah, I know what you're thinking, but I, they work for me. Okay, good. I, <laughs> there's not a scenario in which I forget the time that we were on either the blue or the yellow trail uh, at Shelby Farms in Memphis. This would be the summer of 1989. And <laughs> uh, a, a guy, I don't know what it was he hit, some little bump. And there aren't. I mean, it's not flat there, but there aren't many things in, in terms of bumps other than maybe roots. Uh, it's an area just utterly devoid of rock. And uh, dude hit something and suddenly his right hand was at full extension to his side with a grip in his hand. <laughs> uh, and if memory serves, he wound up be just fully supermanning into stinging nettle. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, 
Yeah, I'm not going to try to dissuade anyone, but I am. I you, have you my, like a lock on grip. Um, I, 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 I do. I do. I mean, what you don't know is that that particular gentleman cheated on his taxes and his wife. And it was just dramatic karmic rebalancing that caused that. It wasn't had nothing to do with the grips. And it was a, it was collected in one lump payment. That's right. OK. All right. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll bear that in mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I grips. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> My pick this week is a book I read earlier this spring called The Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller and the World Economy Bigger by Mark Levinson. Now, I know what you were thinking. Patrick that, really knows how to party. I'm thinking that you've been thematically consistent with this podcast and I'm really impressed, but go on. (laughs) Well, I wasn't ever going to mention this book on the podcast, but now that we're hitting supply chain issues, it's like, you know, it's kind of worth it to mention this book because my sense of how the supply chain issues have unfolded and not recovered and some recovered and, you know, all these different solutions, it's Certainly having read that book has helped to inform that and uh, made it a good deal more fascinating for me. But again, I reiterate, I know everyone out there is thinking Patrick really knows how to party. Um, and for this, I, I actually I get to have a fall guy. I blame event promoter Murphy Mack, uh, who's well known here in northern Northern California for uh, events like Lost and Found, which everybody loves to go to and nobody really wants to uh, suffer all that much, but they know when they show up to his stuff, they're going to suffer um, boatloads. Ooh, look what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. I'm not uh, going to speak to you again today. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. The box really is a fascinating read for anyone who is curious, and I know this is a small Venn diagram, about how the world economy was completely reinvented over about 40 years and how both unrestricted capitalism and government intervention can both foster and harm emerging industries. I love logic puzzles and the way shippers looked at how to use elements like non-union ports intermodal transportation and even innovating shipping routes to drive down costs was to this geek uh, utterly fascinating and the way government grants could help cover the cost of building a ship blew my mind <laughs> if you're a rich guy there's a lot of money out there for you to get um mm. that was that was one of my bigger tape takeaways um but as a guy who just digs technology The battle over container sizes and standards and how they should fit together and lock into place um, in terms of, you know, long game tactics. It was not unlike how in videotape VHS ultimately beat the better Betamax technology due to the lack of licensing fees. Mm. Cut costs one place and suddenly you've got this huge advantage. Um, Remove the obstacles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I'll grant kind of a dry read at times, but, uh, (laughs) but better than the book you're going to rep next week, the unabridged history of the glove compartment. (laughs) I earned that. I did. I earned that. (laughs) Shoelaces discovered. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not going to say anything against that because you never know where I'm going to go next. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. You know, I actually I'll I'll tip this in advance. I got a book this week, which is not yet on the market. Uh, it's called The Midlife Cyclist. Uh, oh. And it's written by a friend of mine uh, named Phil Cavell, who is one of the founders of Cycle Fit in London. Um, mm-hmm. And Cycle Fit hosts a... A fit symposium, an international fit symposium, uh, most non-pandemic uh, affected years. Uh, they also did the fits for the Trek Segafredo uh, pro mm-hmm. team. Uh, they did Fabian Cancellara's fit in the last few years of his career. Uh, and Phil was quite a rider in his own right and um, was hit by a car at some point and, and so mm. had a spinal fracture and has had to 
navigate coming back from that. But anyway, so he's he's taken this pandemic year and written this book about, you know, how to be a midlife cyclist when your your body changes and and you have mm. different goals and different challenges. So I'm I've started reading that and that'll uh, turn into uh, potentially a, a pace line tandem with Phil and uh, certainly a review for people out there who are of a certain age uh, and a certain cycling predilection. Cool. I, well, I, I look forward to hearing more about that. Neat. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, I would say that's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Um, uh, a little shorter than we've been doing. And, uh, we would welcome hearing from people if they actually prefer a little bit quicker turnaround on these. Um, you got anything special planned this weekend, John? I am uh, just trying to get all the miles I can get in all the modalities I can get them right now. Because I have, I think I mentioned last week, even I have some events coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of which maybe I'm ready for. Maybe I'm never ready. But uh, so I'm going to try to go get some miles this weekend. And then I'm going, I'll, I'll be away on vacation, although that'll be invisible to everybody. And I'll be getting miles while I'm on vacation, too. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. What about so, you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going back to Memphis. So, right. you know, I have this intention of I'm going to ride lots, but really I know that what's going to come out of this is that, uh, I'm going to be baked like a cinnamon roll. Yeah. So I, I need to prepare myself for that. I'm going Salt in tabs. with one. Th- yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I will just bring bags of uh, scratch labs with me and just chew that like, you know, the little licking sticks we used to get at 7-Eleven. I mean, if you wanted to do it old school pro style, you take a piece of duct tape and you press it on to or actually double double stick tape, wide double stick tape. You press it into the scratch labs and then you you just wrap it around your bars. And then okay. when you're tired, you can just lean forward and lick. I, yeah, yeah. That you know how works. people used to mold power bars? I to their, do remember that. Yeah. Yes. Same I remember concept. having to wash that off bikes and, um, yeah. Okay. That's not something I really needed to remember. Have um, a great time in Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Alrighty, everybody send us some questions. Uh, we enjoy answering them. Uh, and we, again, would love your comments on, uh, if you'd like to hear the short be- show being a little shorter, if you've got an idea or comment or whatever, please drop by the cycling independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find until next week. I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to the pace line.